All right. Today is our last Sunday in Advent. So, uh, if you have your Bibles, let's open to Luke chapter 2. Luke chapter 2. Does it feel like we've been in Luke chapter 2 the last month? It's because we have. Luke chapter 1 and chapter 2 are some of the longest chapters in the Bible. There's a lot of narrative there. So, we're actually going to end on the account and the birth of Christ. Uh, Luke chapter 2, verses 1 uh, through 7. Uh, Let's stand for the reading of God's Word together. In those days, a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. Now, this was the first registration when Quirinius was governor of Syria, and all went to be registered, each to his own town. And Joseph also went up from Galilee, from the town of Nazareth, to Judea, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and lineage of David, to be registered with Mary, his betrothed, who was with child. And while they were there, the time came for her to give birth, and she gave birth to her firstborn son, and wrapped him in swaddling cloths, and laid him in a manger, because there was no place for them in the inn. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Take a seat. Now, as a, as, a, as a lover of film and as a lover of movies, um, I love cameos. You know what a cameo appearance is? It's, it's when you're watching a, a movie or any kind of work of art, and a cameo is where an artist will actually insert himself or herself or place themselves within the very art that they're producing, right? That's what a, a cameo is. And, and you see this probably most uh, proficiently in films, and in movies. So, if you like the Spider-Man movies, you know that the creator of Spider-Man is Stan Lee. Stan Lee is in all of the Spider-Man movies. It's little appearances, but he's, he's in uh, the movies. Uh, M. Night Shyamalan does this with all of his, his films. Uh, more recently, if you like the uh, Lord of the Rings series, uh, Peter Jackson, who, who brought that book to life in the movies, uh, he actually has a cameo uh, in the first film. Uh, right outside uh, the Prancing Pony. He's, uh, he plays a, a drunk eating a carrot. So he actually inserts himself uh, into the movie and into the story. Uh, but it's not just movies. It's not just film. Uh, writers, authors have even done this with literature and with their own books. Uh, C.S. Lewis did it. Uh, he wrote a trilogy, a space trilogy. Uh, he actually wrote himself into the second book as one of the characters. Um, maybe more popular than that series is the Harry Potter series. Um, the character, uh, Hermione, who's a, a young girl, one of the, the three heroes in the book, the author, J.K. Rowling, um, put a lot of herself, uh, a lot of her youth and experiences growing up into that one particular character. Uh, it happens in film, uh, it happens uh, in books, and, and on our side of, 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 of the art, um, if you pause for a moment, isn't, isn't this kind of odd? Isn't that phenomenon of inserting yourself into the story, either a film or, or in a narrative, you know, from our perspective, isn't that weird? Like, why would you do that? Why is, is, is a cameo appearance, why is that even a thing? I don't know if you've ever stopped to think about that. But if you've ever been on the other side of of creating something, if you've ever been an artist, if you've ever written a story, if you've ever produced a painting, 
um, or try to put something on, on film or, or, put some, or make some sort of visual um, about a truth, um, it's almost impossible uh, for you not to s- somehow insert part of yourself into your art. Um, artists have been doing this for decades and for ages. Any good, any good story is always an extension of its author. There's always a part of you in what you create. Uh, it's almost a universal truth. And so the question for us this morning as we consider this story is, first and foremost, is this how you understand Christmas? Is this the lens in which you are looking through reality and seeing the truth, the blessings, and the joy of Advent and Christmas? Because think about, the, think about life and reality this way. This is a grand narrative. This is an epic, a story that we're smack dab in the middle of. And it, and it started good. It started in beauty in this great Garden of Eden where there was fellowship, goodness, and light. And then we broke it. The creation rebelled against the Creator. Darkness entered the world, and there was separation. And, you know, what the author decided to do was, was at a crossroads, he could have taken the script, he could have taken the palette and thrown it out and scrapped it. But what we love about Christmas and why this story is so important to us is that it was at this point, at this point in the narrative in Luke's account, where, where God does not scrap the script, but He enters the story. His image was already in this world in the form of His image bearers, but because He created it, and because it's got part of Him in it, because He's tied to it, He entered into this story. He wrote Himself into the narrative. He left what was glorious. He left what was beautiful to enter this, this, this world that was damaged and corrupted. Why did he do it? Was he obligated to do it? Did he have to do it? No. It's because this world has value, even though it's broken, even though it has rebelled from its original purpose and intent. He loves it. It's dear to him. It's got value. So what I want to look at this morning in this passage is just two things uh, in the coming of Christ and his writing himself into this narrative um, is that he comes in real time. That's the first point is time, and the second point is space. Jesus comes in real time. He comes in real space. To put it another way, uh, time is the when of Jesus' arrival, and the space is the where of Jesus' arrival. So again, we're going to kind of slow down. Uh, we, we, could, we could almost, you know, quote these passages from heart. We've heard them so much, but we're going to slow down and try to soak them in a little bit and celebrate this coming of Christ. So first, um, the when of Jesus' arrival, uh, the time. Um, Timing is everything. About 150 years ago, two German architects were digging up the ancient city of Priene, and they found something that we now call uh, the Priene Calendar Inscription. And it's in a museum in Berlin uh, right now. And here's why this calendar, this inscription that they found was so important. Uh, on this, on this st- piece of stone, and I looked at it this week, uh, copies and pictures of it were 84 lines. And in Greek, it was describing the birth of Caesar Augustus. So the same Caesar Augustus that's in verse 1. 
okay? And they dated uh, this calendar inscription of, of Caesar's birth to about 10 BC. That's when they think this, this stone uh, was crafted and, and created, somewhere around there. And, and just for perspective, Luke was written, you know, late first century, somewhere around 80, 60, 70, or 80. So the difference between the calendar, 10 BC, and Luke's accounts, 80 to 100 years. That's important. Because here's what was written on the inscription about Caesar, about Augustus. And, and pay very close attention to the language they used to describe this baby and what he was going to do. Uh, they called Augustus the Son of God. They called him Savior. He was to be Lord. And he was going to be one who was going to end all wars and whose birth uh, to the world is good news. Again, I wish you could see this in the original language. The word that they used here is euangelion, which is where we get our word evangelism. That's our word for good news uh, in, in the Greek. That was on a calendar inscription 10 years, as best as we can date, before Jesus even showed up. Now, every one of those descriptors Luke uses in his account in the birth of Jesus in chapter 1 or chapter 2, he calls him the Son of God. He calls Jesus Savior. He calls Jesus Lord. He tells that Jesus is going to end all wars, that Jesus and his arrival in this world is going to be good news. Now, now is, is Luke just being a copycat? Has Luke run out of material, and is he just copying Rome as he plundering Babylon, so to speak? No, what, what Luke here, remember, Luke is a very, very smart writer. Very, very intentional. He doesn't waste ink, and he's not going to waste time. All of his, um, his use of dates and details of what going on, what's going on in Rome is very, very important to his narrative. And it's for this reason. He's saying one, like Caesar but one who is far greater than Caesar has come into this world. He's just using Rome's language to describe it. Why? Because he knows his stage and he knows his audience. He's not just copycatting. He hasn't run out of ideas and he's, he's just stealing from Rome. What he's saying is, is one just like but greater than Augustus has come into this world to do for it what Caesar could never do. The contrast, do you see that contrast, what Luke is trying to do? Because he knows his audience. He knows where he is. He's in Rome right now. Uh, I like how one, one commentator puts it. He said, Luke might be the first to engage in political satire, right? We see cartoons, political cartoons in the newspaper all the time. Luke's, Luke might be the first one, right? Here's what happens. Um, here's, what, here's what typically would happen in Rome at this time. If Rome conquered your city, what it would do is it would erase your history. Your city would have a new name, a new identity, a new purpose. Your old history was gone. They were going to rewrite it under this new regime, under this new empire that was going to take over the world. But in a very clever and almost snarky kind of way, do you see what Luke is doing? Luke mentions Caesar Augustus. Luke mentions Rome. He mentions 
of this census that is taking place, but he is rewriting Rome uh, in, in God's history, in his redemptive history. In Rome's history, Caesar is the lead character. Rome is the stage. Luke is reversing it. Luke is saying Caesar and Rome, they're small players. When you think about God's kingdom from start to finish, what God is doing, the peace He's bringing, the Savior He is, who He is that has come to this world as a baby, who is Rome? Who is Augustus? Who are they? They're just, they're just supporting cast. They're just a small act in this grand play. Luke is rewriting Roman history now through the lens of Jesus' kingdom, His eternal kingdom. So it's, it's, it's here, you know, we, we've been wrestling with this question over Christmas, you know, why 400 years of silence? And then now, suddenly, to Mary, to Zechariah, to Elizabeth, to these shepherds, and now to Bethlehem, does Jesus show up because the time was right, and it was ripe. Rome was at its darkest it was at its most threatening. It was at its most severe. And Luke says it was here, now, in this time, that Jesus shows up. The contrast couldn't be more stark. Do you see it? You think Rome is great. You think, you think Caesar is a savior. You think he is good news to this world. You haven't seen anything yet. You haven't seen, you haven't seen our Jesus Jesus comes in real time to bring us good news. But he also comes in, in, in space. If that was the when, and if the when is important, so is the where. Where does Jesus come? The passage says that he was born in Bethlehem. Uh, let me illustrate this way. Uh, if you're a Stranger Things fan, uh, season three, there's a really cool cameo appearance in season three, and you probably missed it. Uh, it's the scene uh, where Steve and Robin are trying to get a job at the video store. And this is not a spoiler, okay? It's the last episode. Uh, Steve and Robin are trying to get a job at the video store, and there's two people in the back just kind of thumbing through videos. And they're never really, like, clear. You can't really see them, you know, for very long. But those two men are Kyle Dixon and Michael Stein. And they are the composers of the soundtrack and the score of Stranger Things, which has you know, gained a lot of popularity. A lot of people like to listen to the soundtracks. It's, it's very 80s. It's really cool. It's really good. You'll enjoy it. Um, so they are actually, you know, you know, musically they're in the show, but now visually they got into the movie. And, and there's a rumor going around as to why, you know, at that point in the video store, why did they choose that moment for their cameo appearance? They could have appeared in, you know, any other episode, any other season, why that one? And rumor is it's because, you know, they, they fell in love with movies at the movie store. We grew up going to Blockbuster, and you're gambling on a movie. Is this one going to be good? And you've got three in your hand uh, because it was the last one on the shelf, and you didn't want somebody else to take it, right? We kind of grew up in that environment before Netflix. And that's where they grew up and fell in love with movies. So that's the scene. That's the where they wanted to insert themselves because it was special. It was meaningful to them. Uh, Bethlehem is rich with meaning. This space, this city, this place, it is not a coincidence that this is where Jesus showed up. Um, even in the Old Testament, Bethlehem has a rich history. Uh, do you remember how it starts? Um, there's a dramatic, 
almost didn't happen, rags to riches love story that takes place in Bethlehem. There's a whole book devoted to it. It's a story of Ruth. Do you remember? We have the character Naomi. She's married to a man from Bethlehem. Not only does her husband die, but her three sons die. And so she is left just to herself uh, in Moab, and there's a famine across the land, and two of her daughter-in-laws go back to their family, but Ruth decides to stay. To stay. And, and things look bleak for Naomi and Ruth, so they go all in on Bethlehem. They go back uh, to the land of her husband's family, and it's there that Ruth meets Boaz. And Boaz, uh, in, in grace and in wisdom and in generosity, um, not only cares uh, for Ruth and Naomi, but eventually would wed Ruth, right? And so we have this, this great love story that almost didn't happen, you know, this, this disaster that was averted, all taking place in the city of Bethlehem. Uh, all that to say, you know, long before the birth of Jesus in Bethlehem, this city is already a theater for a great story of redemption. It's already a city of second chances. Um, but the, the story of, of Ruth and Boaz actually gets better. Uh, you remember that God blesses them with a son, and their son's name is Obed, which means servant. Now, this man's going to be a servant to God's people. And Obed becomes the father of Jesse. And there's a great prophecy about Jesse in Isaiah that from the stump of Jesse, there's going to be a shoot. There's going to be new growth. There's going to be new life that's going to come from this family. And we read further in the Old Testament as the story continues. And who does Jesse father? A whole host of sons, the youngest of which is David. So Samuel approaches David and anoints David, the next king over Israel. He is going to replace Saul as a man after God's own heart. And don't miss this. This word anoint in the Old Testament in the original language, you know what that word is? To be anointed or an anointed one? That word is Mashiach, where we get our New Testament word Messiah or Christ. The anointed one. That's what David is going to be. So not only is Bethlehem already, before Jesus comes on the scene, it's already the, the scene, a theater of a grand redemption. What we see coming out of this city is a servant and anointed king. We're getting David from Bethlehem. So what's happening here, again, is, is don't see this as coincidence. Even though Micah prophesied, Micah prophesied in, in five, chapter 5, verse 2, but you, O Bethlehem Ephrathah, who are too little to be among the clans of Judah, from you shall come forth for me one who is able to be ruler in all Israel, whose coming forth is from of old, from ancient of days. You know, Jesus coming and, and being born in Bethlehem wasn't just a fulfillment of, of the prophecy of Micah. You know, you put it all in a pot and what do you see? You stir this all up and, and what does it make? You get a great city of redemption, but we're not talking about between one husband and one wife. We're talking about a cosmic redemption between Jesus and his bride, the church. Out of Bethlehem was going to come a servant like Obed, 
Jesus said himself, I did not come to be served, but I came to serve. Out of Bethlehem came an anointed king, one who had a heart after God, one who God said to me is like a son. And what was born in Bethlehem? Jesus Christ, who would be the anointed Messiah for all of God's people, not just Israel, but his global church. So we come to Luke chapter 1. Is it coincidence that, that, that Jesus is born here? No, it's not. What, what, what is Caesar doing? Look back at verses 1 and 2. A decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. And this was the first registration when Quirinius was governor of Syria. Make no mistake, what, what Caesar here is doing is a power move. By sending everybody back to their home city to be registered, he is doing two things. He's going to find out how many people are in, are in his realm, are in his kingdom, for financial purposes, number one, and for military purposes, number two. So again, this is, this is Rome's setting. This is, this is the context in which Jesus shows up in space and in time. And while Caesar is, is amassing his power, his glory for world domination, what is happening in the city of Bethlehem? We have a God who is emptying himself of his a God who is emptying himself of his glory, of his power, who left the bright glory and, and, and goodness of the throne room to enter the dark womb of Mary, to enter the dark world of our life, to enter a manger, a cattle stall, a barn, a place of humble beginnings. Again, could the contrast be any more stark? Caesar is, is fighting to amass his power and influence, and Jesus is emptying his. And that is our good news of Christmas, that in real time and in very real space, Jesus shows up. He writes himself into this narrative, not to scrap it, not to end it, but to save it and to rescue it because it was worth saving. It was worth rescuing. Uh, two things for us in, in closing, two things to take home with us. This, this, this manger in Bethlehem can teach us two things. It can teach us one thing about God and it can teach us one thing about ourselves. I'm going to kind of blend them together. The first is this, is that if God can show up in Bethlehem, if God will show up anywhere, if God will show up in Bethlehem. He can show up anywhere. If He will empty Himself of His glory, if He will empty Himself of His might to serve His people in, in, in a humble place like, like Bethlehem in, in a manger, can He not enter your story? I like how one, one commentator puts it. He says, once you've imagined and once you've you've really captured on your insides the wonder of Christ, who is God, in the manger. You can never predict what depths, what valley, what degree of self-humiliation Jesus will enter because He loves you and because He cares for you and because He values you. That's how unpredictable He is. 
If he will enter that story, that narrative, he can and he will enter yours. What God does that for his people? What other God does that for his people? Not out of judgment or wrath, but out of, out of sheer mercy and love, he comes to us and enters our broken narrative and our world to rescue, to save, and to bring life and light. That's the God we serve. What does this tell us? There's all these passages in the New Testament, and I was looking them up this week, um, and a lot of them we know, we know by heart. Um, it's the come unto me passages um, that Jesus uh, teaches in the New Testament. His call to the disciples, come follow me. Matthew 11, come to me and I will give you rest. Uh, come to me all you who labor and are heavy laden and I will give you rest. Matthew 19, let the children come to me and don't hinder them. Like when you hear those verses in the New Testament, when you hear those verses out of Jesus' mouth, what do you hear? And how does that make you feel? And how do you respond to his invitation that you come to him? For some of you, it might be fear. If I go to God, what is he going to do to me or with me? Uh, for some of it, it's, it's, it's shame and guilt. It's, if, if he really knew who I was, uh, he, he wouldn't be inviting me to come to himself. But before you hear those words again, before you hear the invitation of Christ to come unto you, first consider this. Before you come to Christ, know first that He came to you. And what that does is that answers some of the age-old questions that are inside of our heart and our soul that sometimes we're even too scared to mention. And those questions are, can the good news of, of God really be that good? Does God really value me? Is the value that we had in the garden lost forever? Is there any hope against this darkness in, in the world in that which we live? And we know the answer to every one of those questions. God loves you. He values you. There's a light that is greater than the darkness that is in this world. And how do we know? It's because He first came to us. And it's in the context of, of, of that arrival it's in the context of that gift, of that advent, that he says, now come to me. If you're tired, come to me. If you're a child, and if you don't understand the gospel yet, come to me, and don't let the adults hinder you. You come to me. Are you weary? I know how that feels. For he was weary. Are you tired? Do you feel like the darkness is winning? I've been there. I get it. Come to me. Can you hear that with new ears? Can you hear that now in the context of His great coming unto us? That is good news. Amen? Amen. Let's pray together. Jesus, thank you for this great story. Turn it from a, a story. Um, take, take from it the nostalgia that we feel every time we hear it and, and make it bread. Make it our life, make it our lifeline, our, our hope in this great gospel that you, before you call us unto yourself, help us to remember that you first came to us in love and in mercy and in kindness. You came restoring, you came forgiving, you came loving. Would that quell all of our fears? 
Would that stomp out all of our sorrows? Would that fill us with hope and light and with the joy of the shepherds that we read in this story? And we ask it in Christ's name. Amen.